Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Very special on the tape today. Extraordinarily, everyone is special, this one more so. But before we get into it, in the early spring of 1979, <laughs> Supertramp released their sixth studio album. Sixth studio album. By the way, I'd never heard of Supertramp until this album. Again, I heard this song earlier today and it got me thinking. By the way, this is the On The Tape podcast. Danny Moses. Hello. Dan Nathan. Hi. But it's special because on this episode, we're joined by the great Porter Collins and Vincent Daniel. Fellas, how are you guys doing today? We are fantastic. Thank you. Feeling feeling good. And you know, people think we have it scheduled, like we just brought them on because the markets are down. This has been planned no, for months. this has been planned months. for a while. Okay. We, we plan out. We have to do that. What are we doing is we're actually planning what out, this we're is. We're planning out our schedule. We're planning <laughs> yeah. out until January of next year. It is uncanny, though, Guy, that almost every time we've been on this show, the market's gotten killed. Per- perhaps <laughs> Maybe we should, we should have you on more often. But I mentioned the Super Tramp because the lyrics of this song, particular song, resonate with me. And oddly enough resonate with the three of you, the three being Porter, Danny, and Vinny. So here you go. Because you're the joke of the neighborhood. That's a line. Now, let me stop and say, for the longest time, I've been the joke of the financial neighborhood because I've been waxing poetic about things that haven't come to fruition. So I'm the joke of the neighborhood. But then the next line is, why should you care if you're feeling good? And you know what? That's an excellent point. Why should I give a shit that I'm the joke of the neighborhood? Because I feel good. And everything is sort of, it's happening right before our very eyes. Now, I mentioned this to you, Danny, and you said, oh, I can't believe that. Because back in the day, you used to sing this song with a little bit of a twist. Well, Vinny actually coined it, and we we would have a bad day on the desk. We're like, well, where are you going? Well, I was going to take a cab, but it wasn't a great day, so I guess I'm taking the train. (laughs) And so instead of taking the long way home, take the four train home. And that's how, right, Vinny? Is that not how it started? Take the four train home. No. That is an edited version. There's of, a little bit of, of someone else in the story. It. There's another person that we will mention who used to take the four yeah. train. Sometimes take, on a yes. bad day would take the subway home. So, yes, it does. And it's a depressing. And as I mentioned before, every year we had a holiday party. We took out our brokers and our friends and everybody. And we made an album or a CD, guys, you would call it. 
which I know you still have a lot of. And we'd have, through the course of the year, there'd be things that would happen. It could be a song that has, has a name of a stock in it. It could be, we would just start to sing things. Most of the time, they were depressing. They would be something where like REM songs, something right. really Everybody horrible. Hurts. Everybody Hurts, we would do. And so anyway, that came up a lot, that song, Take the Four Train Home. So As it should. Long. And it's great that we have both of you because I have been feeling like the joke of the neighborhood for quite some time. But over the last week or so, things are starting to happen. And Vinny, I want to start with you, that are reinforcing my belief system. And front and center, for me at least, Vin, is this move in the bond market. I think for most people, they know what the bond market is, but they don't understand the importance of what all this is happening. 10-year yields have gotten to levels we haven't seen in, I think, 15 or so, maybe even longer than that. What a weird coincidence. Yeah. yeah. What Sorry, a weird coincidence. Yeah. But you know what is the what is this? And we're going to talk about a lot of things, Vinny and Porter. But what does the bond move mean to you? Well, first off, thanks for having us on. Are you kidding awesome. me? I, this is a- I miss you guys, and I was looking forward to this all week. Second, the bond market. If if I have to use just one word, scary. Mm-hmm. And we'll start with that, and then go from there. And I was thinking about you guy and that. You, you have this line you use frequently, and I love it, is that when they rewrite the book of this current era of fraud and they're, and they're writing about the antagonists or the villains, you always say at the top of the list is the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. I want to redirect your anger. Oh. Right? I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong. He doesn't change. It's not easy to change him, but you can I, change. I can I, change. I, we all can change. Good luck, Vinny. I, look, yeah. look I, I, I would call you a derogatory, a stubborn derogatory. No, you, I am. I'm a, I'm a stubborn Italian. I'm half Sicilian. I am as stubborn as can be. But That's you can change. Of, I, it's hard for me okay, to change, but I'm willing to listen. I want to redirect your anger towards our fiscal policy. And I think all of us Fair. need to shift focus to what has happened for the past 40 years, and it's intensified over the last two years, so it's front and center in the news, is our fiscal policies is my biggest concern that the movement that we're seeing in rates is not a real function of inflation because inflationary trends are, let's say, roughly improving. I mean, I know we could quabble about core and stuff and the like, but it's the fiscal that gets me concerned that if this move is real because of fiscal, holy crap, even the worst bears can't fathom that move. Okay. I don't want to turn this into the Vinny and Guy, because we obviously, there are five of us here, but I want to address that for a second. And I'll say this. If you have a hockey team that has a great goaltender, but they can't score goals, it's not the goaltender's job to not only stop the puck, but then to try to score the goals for the team as well. That person has to do his job. And when they start trying to do the job of other people is when both sides of the equation get screwed up. And why do I mention that? Because, Vinny, you're 100% right to bring up fiscal policy in this country, which has been a disaster since Eisenhower. You want to go back that far? I mean, I will I will give you that without question. But it's not the job of the Federal Reserve to try to offset shitty fiscal policy with monetary policy that's going to try to assuage the concerns or fix things. There should just, if they had stayed in their lane, I think we'd be much better off. So I'm with you 100%. But, you know, the Federal Reserve should have been smart enough to know, you know what? Fiscal is what it is. We can't fix it. We're not going to try. And I think to a certain extent, that's what they've tried to do. We're really talking about for people out there is obviously kind of the longer end of the curve, right? Anything kind of past five years, right? Because the Fed's controlling the shorter end. And I was going back and looking and I fell victim or I'm falling victim to the belief that, and I still believe the rates will have a big snapback lower at some point. 
I had forgotten like just normal 10-year yields, like normal 10-year yields, right? Five, 6% is kind of the number. Mm -hmm. So you look, you talk about 2007, you go back and look, this economy, in my opinion, is not built for that, unfortunately, for what we forget. The Fed was keeping rates artificially low for a long time with QE forever, right? It's been going on, right? And we are now, there's no incremental buyer. Who are the incremental buyer? The, the Fed's letting treasuries run off each month on top of mortgage-backed securities run off each month. Who is the buyer of these things? And to your point and to, to Vinny's point about the fiscal, we have a lot of debt to issue here too. So I think the realization is we're having this moment here where we're resetting. Again, we talked about a generation of investors who don't understand what normal and a normal cycle feels like. And this may cleanse a little bit, but I'll tell you this, there's going to be people carried out. And I don't know the names of the funds. I don't know who it's going to be. But when you see moves like this over a short period of time, this is a levered sector, fixed income. And I talked about before how brokers extend leverage to various clients, three, four, five X. And you take one turn down from five to four X in this type of market where this, this is the stuff you start to see. So what is normal? What's a normal 10 year rate when the Fed is not artificial? So it's funny. Rate? So last night, my wife came to watch a movie. So there was nothing on on demand, like nothing that we wanted to watch. I said, let's flip through HBO. And at nine o'clock, and I thought of you two, you two being Porter and Vinny, we stumbled upon school ties. And I'm saying to myself, holy shit. You know that, right? Porter's school ties, right? A hundred percent. Okay, so I'll make sure. It's a hundred percent. Yeah. He is those guys. And Vinny's the guy they brought in from Pennsylvania. <laughs> no, that would be quarterback. me. But well, almost no, Danny. Vinny. Yeah. That's Danny. Yeah. But you know- Your well, tradition or mine, sir. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand. But Vinny, yeah. so- you know, you're in my head all the both you guys, but more so last night. But anyway, you, listen, Porter, you heard what we're talking about. What are your thoughts on all this stuff? Well, first of all, in, in your analogy, who, who's Robin Williams? Well, no, no, that's no. That's Dead Poet Society, Society, you preppy Society. maniac. No, right. You can't get your prep schools straight. You've Can been you? to so many prep schools. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, you've been to so many of them. They're all the same, right? <laughs> oh, I mean, my God. Talk about elitist. Yeah. Go ahead, Porter. I mean, get, a, get yeah. a crew or. <laughs> And oh, I'm sorry. Up. Oh, what about Rob Lowe? Oh, sorry. That was Oxford Blues. He was a rower. Go ahead. Go ahead, Porter. Please go. Well, yeah. the, you know, the, <laughs> the Bulls want to talk about they have a new moniker for you know everything. And this fiscal policy, they call it fiscal dominance, right? And so fiscal dominance is, is, is the narrative of the day. And, you know, I think you and I and, and Guy and Dan, you know, we talk about it and all fiscal dominance is is deficit spending and free money, right? And so, you know, we've said this all along that we're, we're in wartime budget deficits, right? We're, we're running seven, 8% budget deficits. God forbid, you know, what, what happens when this economy actually turns down? And, you know, the, the people that keep talking about the soft landings, right? The soft landing, and there's been four soft landings since the last, whatever, since they've been looking at soft landings. And all of them have been soft landings because there's an impulse of fiscal stimulus, right? And, and that's the natural balance of what the Fed and fiscal have been able to do when economy's weak, the big brother steps in and they increase spending. But the problem is we're starting from such a bad place. And I don't know what the Fed can do when something like this happens too, because you know inflation's already a problem. And you're seeing inflation has been coming down. But it, it, if you look on the year-over-year -year chart, the numbers hooked back up again. Mm -hmm. And since those numbers have come out, oil's gone from 65 to 90. You have wage pressures again. You have UAW striking. You have healthcare wages are, are never going down in this country. And so I think what happened yesterday was a bit of wake up to the world that, you know, that they're 
longer term expectations of rates is higher. You know, otherwise the natural rate of inflation is maybe higher than they thought. And so I think you're in a bad place for the market where, you know, the, the market wants bad news at this point, right? They want bad job numbers so that the Fed can cut rates. But be careful what you wish, wish for, because every time the Fed's cut rates, the market gets killed. I, I think you're in a sort of a dangerous spot here with the market. That, that's my opinion. So guys, what was it that the investors were not appreciating, let's say a week ago when we had a 13 VIX, we had the move index, which, which, you know, was, was trading at multi-year lows. You know, we were a few percent off the all-time highs or the recent 52 week highs. What was it that when you guys were listening to that presser and, and I'll let Danny jump in in a second too, because he was texting me during it. You were, you were bouncing off the walls, listening to Jay Powell a little bit. What was it that, that sparked the down? word volatility. Higher for longer meant a breakout in the 10-year treasury yield. But, you know, stocks, I mean, if I just look at like an Amazon, Amazon has dropped 15% in a straight line in a week off of a 52-week high. And I could give you another dozen examples of stocks like that. We went from a period of very low complacency where a lot of folks were just kind of throwing their arms in the air and saying it's going to be a rip into year end to, okay, maybe, maybe there's a little something to this. Let's talk a little positive here for a second prior to what Powell said. I think all of us to a person would say that the economy has been more resilient than anyone would like to believe. And as a result of that, assuming the economy equates to earnings expectations, earnings should be better than people think. Combined with the fact that up until I would say a month ago, core inflationary expectations, at least there was a belief that they were trending down. So if you have a combination of better economic conditions, uh, more resilient economic conditions, and better inflation, it kind of made sense that volatility levels, and then if you add to the whole element of market structure and the like, would be at ultra low levels, which usually means as well, guys, as we spoke about and you guys speak about at nauseum, when volatility is low, gross exposure across the entire institutional capital markets complex is extremely high. And that becomes a much more dangerous thing at low volatility levels. At least that's our process and how we think. Well, let me put that into common sense terms for people out there. So this VAR, right, that's measured, uh, you know, across the value world. Value at risk. Value at risk. And I'm sure a guy, his days at Jay Aaron, got the tap on the shoulder and certain things. To your point, Vinny, when vol is low, people lever their book up, but then it's kind of backwards looking. The minute the vol goes higher, you're forced to take down all those positions. I consider this presser yesterday, and for the people that don't know this movie, that means they're not experienced enough to have know what's going on in this market. There's a movie called Broadcast News, mm -hmm. where Albert Brooks gets the primetime chair because William Hurt, I believe, couldn't make it in or something, and he's sitting up there and he's sweating, and it's just it was the most uncomfortable thing you've ever watched. I don't understand is this. He had the opportunity, to your point, Vinny, to say the following, economy's doing fine, you know, we're going to judge this in the next meeting. We're data dependent and all this. But where he kind of lost me completely, you know, on, on all of this was when he was answering the question. And again, you can interpret this any other way. Do you think we're still going to have a soft landing? The answer should be, we're hopeful that we have a soft landing. Not, well, I'm not saying that. What does that mean? Does that mean that he thinks there's no landing and we're going to be fine? Or does it mean it's a potential hard landing? I got one thing to say and one thing only. And this goes back to Bernanke. His precious was always the stock market, probably more than Powell to give to put those two in perspective, the stock market was always the barometer. There was no question after watching that meeting that they took it upon themselves to be a little more outwardly hawkish because, to Dan's point about, hey, why, what were people expecting? Because the stock market has been so strong. They're using that as the proxy. That's my belief. So now what does that mean? That means that now if the market does start to go down lower, obviously we'll start to see Fed fund futures trade as if there's no 
hike. Mm-hmm. It's already down to 22%, I think, for the next meeting anyway at this point. That's how quickly it's kind of changed and a rate cut will be potentially brought forward. But let me bring back Porter's point and put all this in the point that Vinny just made. How can you do this? How, what are we going to do? We're going to stoke more inflation. We're not ready. So we are in this kind of what I would have named the show today is No Way Out Rocky Four potentially, because I know that's near and dear to Vinny's and Porter's heart as well. But that's what I kind of took away. It was more of like, all right, you're a sideshow, pal. I get it. The Fed, you have to manage your book regardless of whether they made you feel good or made you feel bad. But that just made me nervous because I feel like everything he's led up to in this last 525 basis points of hikes kind of went out like, you don't have control of this. You really don't understand. And I am not a Jerome Powell fan. But let me say this. I think he knows. I think he didn't look particularly good to me. And I'm not trying to interpret his appearance. But I think he knows exactly what's happening. He's been in the markets before. This is, I mean, he's an academic, but he also was in a seat for a period of time where he should understand the ramifications of their actions in terms of markets. He sees what's happening and he realizes, to your point, there's no way out. And of this soft landing, people that start talking about, they don't even know what airport they're flying to. They can't find the effing runway to land. What economic data points was he looking at to change from the from the July meeting to say things are stronger? The revision to GDP being higher? That's meaningful. I'm like, what are you looking at? Because how he doesn't comprehend. Sorry, now I'm going off on that. These rates staying high for this long, the lag impact, what he should have said is he did. He mentioned that the Mm -hmm. lag impact of rates is starting to show, said certain things, but then everything was just kind of counterintuitive. And I don't give him benefit of the doubt for being like overly smart or trying to, you know, slip one past the goalie because I don't think that's the case at all. But Porter, you I don't know if you had a chance to watch it yesterday, but it didn't change anything how I feel, but it made me feel a little bit less confidence mm-hmm. that the Fed, maybe guy, maybe they do know what's going on. I, I don't listen, think I they want do. Porter in, but I'm not confident in any of their ability. I mean, they couldn't have been more wrong. And what's funny is, you know, people will come on the networks and say the Fed is solving the problem. They're battling inflation. They created a fucking problem in the first place. They're solving the problem, theoretically, that they created. This is all. With that. So that's why, you know, I'll push back on Vinny a little bit. And he's right. I mean, fiscal policy is a disaster. But now it's but, front and center. But the hubris of these people to think they can control things they have no control over. That, to me, is is equal amount of the problem. I think that, you know, as you can tell, Vinny and I are on the uh, the fiscal dominance train at this point that, you know, I, I sort of try to tune out. What most of what Powell's saying, because it's all sort of gibberish at this point. But if you look from the fiscal side, is where's the rational person in Congress? I mean, remember, remember the days of we, we thought the, the Tea Party were the crazy people? Like, where, where are those people? Where, where are the people saying, where are the prudent, where are the prudent people? Vinny and I have this conversation all the time, and we say to each other, hey, Vin, do you think there's anybody in call it White House, Congress that has has a grand plan for this that, you know, like they, they have it all figured out and, and they're they're actually minding the store. There's an adult in the room. They know what's happening. And, and sadly, I think the answer is they have no idea what they're doing. The fiscal side is one thing, but the the, the stuff to your point, I, I totally agree with you. You got to focus on what's in front of you. And I think the Fed is somewhat backwards looking. And what can the Fed do at this point? I don't think they're close to it yet. We're probably 300 points in the S&P away from that and maybe 50 to 75 bond points, Mm -hmm. basis points in in the bond market, which is pausing QT and potentially lowering the bank's threshold for ability to hold treasure or, you know, easing that SLR. Those are the things, again, not now, but those are the things that I think they can do. And that's pretty much things get really bad buying corporate debt at some point down the road, but we are so far from that. So 
One of the things I want to talk to you guys about, and, and you guys have been on this for a while, is oil. And you just kind of mentioned it briefly here and try to figure out oil's movement here. Is it inflation? Is it supply demand? Is it structural? Is it both? Is it yes. all of these things? Yes, yeah. all these things. And get your guys' thoughts on oil because it is such a huge component and, it, and it's a regressive tax, obviously, on the consumer. I just wanted to make um, an editorial. You know, in the great show on ESPN, Pardon the Interruption? <laughs> yep. And at the end, Riali would would... Yep. Focus on errors. Who, who right? do you got today? The song is No Easy Way Out, not No Way Out. Oh. Sung by the great Robert Tepper. <laughs> hey, no way no out. easy way out. I just needed to get that out. Porter, you, you take the stage. We, we've been, you know, we've been energy bulls for a long time. And because of energy, we, we sort of become more of an emerging market bulls. And, you know, the, what, what Biden did, I, I actually will give him credit with the SPR because he got a lot of bang for his buck in, in terms of selling down the SPR and, and br really bringing oil prices from 120 to call it 60 bucks. Right. So well, well, well done by him. And I, and I think that, you know, a lot of people benefit all, all over the world benefited from that. But, you know, now that the SPR is drawn down and you know, everyone keeps on worrying about how weak China is, but you look at energy markets around the world, they're going back up. You look at something near and dear to heart, met coal prices for making steel have gone back up again. And so there's a lot of energy and, and material inputs that are going back up. And I think if you look at Germany, they're in contraction mode. The U.S. growth is not gangbuster. So by all accounts, energy should be weak, but it's not weak. And part of that is because the Saudis and the rig count in the U.S. is down a lot. Mm -hmm. And so we remain very constructive on oil despite what's going on. And I think you'll find out that the real cost of, of energy is a lot higher than people think it is. And so you mentioned Met Coal, so you guys can speak to this. I'm not looking to play stock market here, and I always mispronounce the name, but Consol, C-E-I-X, as we're sitting here, you know, this is a stock that's been a four-bagger over the last couple of years. It's sitting right around an all-time high. So you're spot on. Listen, I'm, I'm cherry-picking, I know, but it's the entire space that you guys, both Vinny and Porter, have been talking about, Danny, that has been absolutely on fire. Now, people will say, is the run over? There's still opportunity. I mean, I think there is. I, I think we're just getting started here in terms of the cycle. The stocks have moved, but the cycle's just starting. Vinny, thoughts on that? I would just say, look, the recent move in all things energy have been very strong, in particular coal and uranium. Are we adding incremental dollars right now to our positions right now? The answer is no, right? Because, because... I see RSIs north of 65, north of 70. I mean, some of the uranium names got north of 80. Mm -hmm. I don't add when I see that, right? If, if anything, I subtract. For people out there, RSI, relative strength index relative to the rest of the market. So, sorry. And, 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 and I that's apologize. not universal, by the way. There are some names we've been adding, but I, yes. In, in, so we're going to talk about uranium, stock picks on the back half of sure we are. part right. two of the All episode. Right. So, yeah. But, but in general, just to echo Porter's point, I think because of global inept energy policies, particularly the emphasis on green energy and very heavy costs, highly subsidized green energy. It provides an equal feather in our cap to continue to stay long energy, albeit we're picking, choosing our spots mm -hmm. when, when there are weaknesses. But you look at nat gas, you, um, Guy just mentioned coal and so forth, right? These are all, nat gas feels like it's in complete catch-up mode here, potentially to oil. I know oil sold off a little bit here the last couple of days, but that disparity too, I'd imagine you see dislocations in the market where things are kind of out of sorts for a period of time, right? I mean, Nat Gas feels like is is going to go up a lot from here. Do you guys agree with that or, or no? They, they call it the Widowmaker mm -hmm. uh, asset for, for a reason. <laughs> you know, the, there is a lot more Nat Gas production in the U.S. especially 
And so I said it was on your podcast like two or three ago that at two bucks, the bottom was in. From there, I'm not that great at gauging weather patterns and all that. It's a more volatile asset. But in commodities, you know, the people who know the king asset is crude, right? And I think crude oil, it might pull back, but but the bottom's in, the train has left the station. And, you know, I, I said it the other day on Twitter, I, I do think that the, the Biden administration is going to come in at some point prior to the election and try to jawbone Mm-hmm. with the SPR uh, prices lower. So, you know, things will be volatile. But again, the, the, these a lot of these stocks that we own are anywhere from, call it, you know, one to four times EBITDA. And they don't really scare me. And, and you know, in the case of, you know, we talked about these Met Coal names, you know, all it took was a little bottoming in Met Coal, the torque on a lot of these names because they have fixed cost base, price moves and PEs or EBD, EBITDA multiples get a lot cheaper really quickly. I think it was in, in early Q4, you guys kind of were pounding the table on that. But let's talk a little bit about top down. The S&P is up 13.5%. It's down about 5% from the recent highs. NASDAQ, you know, given 7.5% back or so, is up, you know, almost 27%. H- how do you think, you know, we, we've talked about this a little bit. It, it reminds me an awful lot of kind of late 2021 at this time where, you know, the, the major indices were saying one thing, but a lot of the stuff that we were looking at under the hood was saying some very different things, right? And so if you look at the equal weight S&P, not trading particularly well, some very economically sensitive parts of, of the economy, at least in the stock market, are not trading particularly well. If you look at small cap stocks measured by the Russell 2000, really underperforming on a relative basis, large cap. I feel like we're in a very similar situation here where that was late 21 when the Fed said they were going to start raising interest rates, but not for a few months, right? And high valuation stocks started to sell off. Cryptos, you know, SPACs, recent tech IPOs. I feel like under the hood, it's not too different right now. Guys, help us think about that a little bit. From an earnings perspective, you have the unicorn of NVIDIA. NVIDIA is, you know, in terms of earnings impulse, it's, it's obviously gone up a lot. Google's been been pretty good. But, but I guess from a broad brush perspective, you know, look at Apple. The earnings haven't gone anywhere, but but from the beginning of the year, the, the price earnings ratio has gone from 20 to 30. That's the move in the entire market, essentially. Right, Apple is the the biggest, and you, you've had a lot of multiple expansion, and so a lot of it's just market structure dynamics that and I'm not sure that any of us really fully understand the market structure dynamics of passive and large cap flows. But the large caps have been absolutely trounced anything else in the world, honestly. Small caps, emerging markets, everything they've they've crushed everything. So it does feel like that that we're you know, it doesn't feel like we are giving some of that back, and as you know any any wobble in the markets, obviously the first capital to come out is the large cap tech. And it's, listen, it's a seasonally weak period anyway, right? I I remember last year, this time of year, we were at future proof and the market was getting killed. And, you know, so it is a very weak seasonal period. You know, let's see what happens in the back half of the year. I'm never going to rule the stock market out of of Q4 rally. The, The problem, Porter, is that when these stocks start to sell off the Magnificent Seven or whatever, what's the buy point? Because to your, the point you just made, they're not trading on normal valuations, right? They're trading on momentum in the market and, you know, people have to own them and they want to own them. And we know they got over-owned. My problem is where do people say, oh, that's the entry point. Oh, no, because from a fundamental perspective, it's much lower. So if this thing keeps going, it'll feed on itself to the downside. But Vinny, give us your thoughts because I just wanted to add that on because I think that's the problem here. Danny, I agree with you, but but I, I think I tell myself once or twice every day, the market is not what you used to be, and market structure has changed. You, you the tweet, dynamic. by the way, Vinny, you put that tweet out 
the other day, I think. I don't know. What do they call when you pin something, Dan? You pin your tweet. Well, I think Vinny pinned that tweet about market structure. And if people that don't follow Vinny or Porter, they should. Anyway, please continue because you're right to point out market structure is broken. Porter and I did something at Columbia yesterday and someone used the word market structure is broken. I go, I never use that term. I'm just going to say it's different, <laughs> right? And as a result, because of it's different, things that we look at like overall value of the market is less meaningful to me. And I'd rather not look at it at all. So- on the one hand, the proliferation of ETFs where money flows into the pipes and it goes to cap-weighted stuff, which goes to the 7 to 10, 15 names. Well, obviously, that's a positive tailwind for the big names. How does that reverse? Well, if we get higher on unemployment, you're going to have a problem. Conversely, the other side of the equation is the vol targeting regime where these are levered pools of institutional capital. And they are usually, or mostly because this is how you would run these things, long, and I'll explain what I mean, the short-term momentum factor, which in English means long what is working, right? So because you get, because being contrarian in those regimes can get yourself in a lot of trouble. So they just tend to be long whatever is working, they're long trend. So when does the market change? I think, to get back to your point, Danny, the scary part is when the market does change and the long-term, the short-term momentum factor is negative, then you could actually see this go down a lot lower than people believe just sheerly by flows and, and change in sentiment. And then people will blame. It's amazing because on the way up, everybody attributed it to the strong U.S. economy and the fundamentals of the stock market and everything looks great. And that's why the market's going higher. But if this were to turn to Vinny's point in that fashion, they would blame algos and you know front running and all that. If it works to the upside, it works to the downside Oh, blame short sellers. But Porter, I just want to just kind of get this take from you too, because it's it's interesting. Again, you know, so these top ten names dragging the major indices up, but there's and Danny said this a hundred times, you know, between in 2023 about picking stocks, right, and finding good stories and finding value and and the like. Some stocks that have been much loved for a very long time: Nike, Starbucks, Disney. Target. I mean, the list, I, I can come up with a list that are falling off the bottom right of the charts. You know what I mean? And this is why I, I, I come back to a little bit of late 2021, because we felt like we were kind of screaming into the abyss a little bit about some of the things that we were seeing and how it all comes together. I think it was you, Vinny, who mentioned, I mean, the last time Fed funds was here and the 10-year was November 2007. And I remember vividly how bullish all the same cats were mm -hmm. about, the, you know, the S&P and, and the broad market and how we could withstand rates where they were and everything like that. And we we're about to fall off a cliff. Vin and I don't spend a lot of time in large cap stocks, except for our beloved Google, which I, you know, Vinny has uh, coined its balance sheet godlike. <laughs> and uh, of course, they, they do show the uh, NFL Sunday ticket and our beloved Jets. And so, I, you know, hard to hate a stock like that. It, it's carried by such a few amount of stocks and, and people can confuse and maybe politicians confuse too the strength of seven stocks with the strength of the U.S. economy, which just is not the case. The other thing yeah, is that Instacart and Arm both broke IPO price. Mm -hmm. Now, one of them's floating just below, one is floating just above. But so the fanfare of the markets reopening and doing all the stuff that, that come over there. All right. So, Vinny, this By next- way, it's Interesting, yeah. Danny. Good, good yeah. point about that. Usually, yeah. you know, the capital market cycle coincides with a market, a lot, lot of capital flows coming in. But interesting, this time when the capital markets open, there were only- Two IPOs, right? right? Three, yeah, I think. It was, you, yeah. yeah, three. It's usually a nice little bull run where they they try to shove every piece of 
mm-hmm. paper out the door, and they only got they only well, got two of them out, and they both broke, broke price. Porter, that's a great point. I mean, you would have thought with the Nasdaq up thirty percent or something like that, there would be a line out the door to get IPOs there. I'll mention one other point. We talked about November two thousand seven, and you know Cisco had really poor guidance in early November, and that was it. That was the top people, and you know what? Cisco might have just rung the bell. This morning they announced this what twenty four billion dollar deal for Splunk. You know, there's a company yeah. they're they're taking out, you know, at six times sales or something like that. It's eight percent of their sales. It's got double the gross margin, and I, I get it. I get why companies like that are kind of trying to do some things. But we might what do we call it? Guy like footnoting this one? You no, know, that company Triple M Minnesota yeah. Manufacturing and yeah. Mining. They make those tabs that yeah. you can put a stick on. Stick them no, but 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 stick, stick around for this one, guys, because this this is not a deal that will likely to have a joke. age what's particularly the, well. What's the symbol for three M? We used to have that. We used to have that joke. But that. anyway, and you're right because normally you post way, Labor God, Day. I appreciate that. I, I yeah. even the market historian like myself, I didn't know that was where three M got the. Uh, come on, come on, no. Porter. I mean, you're I didn't prep know school. That. I what did you learn in that prep? What did you learn how to do there? Know. I mean, on I know the ticker, tie? but I didn't know. I didn't know where it came from. But it always is the window is post Labor Day, pre Thanksgiving. Throw as many of the stuff as you can. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, Their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. we got to move to the consumer. Yes. Because it's the be-all, end-all in the U.S. It's the driver of everything. Things are getting a little bit, you know, tenuous. Dicey. Maybe. Yeah. But, but, but Danny, I, can I, I'm going to give you credit, Danny. Yeah. There's very few stocks that Danny pitches, but the one stock, the consumer stock that he's pitching or has been pitching, Walmart is was making, as of last time I looked, 52-week highs. All-time highs. Yeah. And all-time highs. And it's very interesting that it used to go hand-in-hand hand with Walmart and Target. Mm-hmm. Target is making 52-week lows. Multi-year lows. We're going to save our single now. stock. We're going to save this. But it is indicative of the consumer because it's dropping down. The middle-income consumer is coming down a little bit to you know shop at Walmart. Anyway, 
So, but this is important because we've had rates at zero for 15 years effectively. Cost to borrow is free, both on the corporate and consumer level. U.S. consumer, I always underestimate mm-hmm. it. I mean, in terms of how strong they're going to be. And I don't want to, you know, the world's not ending at any time soon with the U.S. consumer. However, they are extended. And because it is so important to the U.S. economy, more than any other economy on the globe to itself, to its country, the U.S. consumer. Actually, it's probably the most important to the rest of the globe, too, as a U.S. consumer. But Vinny, give me the health yes. of the U.S. consumer. We got the student loan stuff. We got credit card debt that's kind of obviously at all time highs. We got auto lenders, which are pulling out of the market. Like it just feels like cost of capital is moving up and it's starting to have an impact on the on the consumer. What are you seeing? Let's start with the positive and then we'll go to all the negatives, right? The positive is that employment is strong and wages are pretty good, right? Definitely better than we would have thought at this point in time. So as a result, there is some disposable income to spend. Now let's go to the negatives. And I think they're there it's plentiful. One. In many respects, a lot of the consumers have already exhausted themselves. And I tell you guys all the time, I look at credit card growth on a year-over-year basis, on a nominal basis to see that. And we're still in the mid-teens. We've come off the high teens, but we're still in the mid-teens, which tells me there really isn't that much excess dry powder for consumers to spend. And I think the biggest thing for us, and it's pervasive in our portfolio, particularly on the short side, is with higher rates and if everything is financialized and we believe almost everything you buy particularly higher ticket items are based upon monthly payment high ticket discretionary i think has been in a recession for probably three to six months and it will probably continue for the foreseeable future particularly every time that tenure ticks up more and more i say to myself oh shit, that's not good for the home building mm-hmm. sector or or the or the housing sector Oh, that's not good for RVs. That's not good for pools. That's not good for anything where you're trying to buy and finance it with longer duration paper. So a long-winded way of saying it, Danny, is that if I had to put where the consumer is trending, I believe it's trending negatively. Is it a steep decline and vicious quick decline? The answer is no, it is in a decline. And we are finding opportunities on the short side as a result of it. One other point I'd like to add, and I think we've talked about this every time, but there are roughly 35 million Americans with student loan payments and they average about four to $500 a month. So I think it's October 1st that goes into effect. They start to pay, start to pay back those student loans. And so I don't think people have really factored that fully into the equation yet because that, that that's a big number, right? And I, I think that we'll, we'll, let's see what happens. And that's part of the fiscal dominance. That's part of the government picking up the tab, part of the free money. Free money is very, very hard to get away from, right? The politicians offer more and more free things and everyone loves free, but pulling that back is very, very difficult. And we'll see if this student loan repayment is a bigger issue than people think it is. Just to add to what Porter was saying, there there is one little caveat to the whole student loan question, which is recently the Biden administration has given student borrowers the ability to forbear. Interestingly enough, they gave he gave them a year to forbear without any impact on their on their credit score. They would have to accumulate interest. So um, it's just interesting. It'll be an interesting thing how much student loan repayments come back into the system and how quick. It might be a little bit more delayed than people think, but we'll see. That's that's a, that's an open question. Let me just say this, so without getting too wonky, on the securitization market, why people should care, right? When you have buyers of fixed income and buyers of equities, buyers of fixed income can be you know pension funds, the same type people, hedge funds can be whatever. They have to go out and purchase paper, right? That's being originated, whether it's an auto loan, a credit card receivable, whatever it might be, right? And they buy it, whatever. The cost to finance is really affected more. Vinny's point is the consumers hit more on the short end, right, to a degree. And so we're seeing, 
lenders pull out of the auto market mm -hmm. for various reasons, which obviously if there's less choices of the car buyer at the dealership, it becomes more expensive. What we saw, and then I want to compare compare and contrast this because nothing could ever compare to the GFC, but we saw in the mortgage market at the time, the underperformance of the underlying, right? So what would happen was Wall Street would lend money to these mortgage originators. They would go out and originate mortgages and they would effectively, the banks would buy back those mortgages and take them off the balance sheet. We're seeing now in various sectors and things where these companies are forced to keep the loans that they're originating, Vinny, correct me if I'm wrong, on their balance sheet because the cost that they're receiving or the price they're receiving for them doesn't make sense mm -hmm. any longer. And to me, we're starting to see nothing catastrophic, but a backup in the system. And when you start to see that, credit becomes less available. This is just natural supply and demand. I want to get your guys' thoughts on that because this is something we haven't had to contend with since 2006 and seven. I also want to I'm not going to draw any comparisons to 2006 or seven. The banks were in much better shape, and I want your thoughts on the banks too in that. So just comment on that and maybe you know correlate that to the banks if you guys don't mind. I'm laughing because the banks are in better shape, maybe in that regard. They got other issues yes. right now, and rate sensitivity is, is being front and center. And, and again, this tenure is not doing them any good. From a credit perspective, I think the banks are in better shape, particularly on the consumer finance side. They will get hit. Charge-offs will go up. Reserves need to go up, but it's not a calamity in any shape or form. Where the issue lies are in usually, and this is usually the case, Danny, as you know all too well, this is our third generation looking at these things, or in the newbies, right? These new companies that disguise themselves for the most part as techie or fintechy. The reality is, is they're specialty finance companies that are making loans to consumers. And of course, because they call themselves a tech company, they have to grow and they usually grow four to five X nominal GDP or four to five X their peers that they're trying to disrupt. And when that happens, you have adverse credit issues, credit issues that are above and beyond what we're going to get from a normal economy. So names like Upstart, names like Affirm, names like Carvana, because they were taking on financing as well, I think are still in trouble. Because I, I, I don't think we've seen the end or, or even, I guess, the early stages of a consumer credit decline, even if it's benign or, or something normal. I think for these guys, it could be severely worse. So I would avoid those names in any way, shape or form being long them. They're squeezy. They could go up a lot because a lot of people like us can be short, but I would not own them in any way, shape or form. I'll summarize my thoughts by telling a story about our uh, our former boss, Steve, Vinny, myself and a couple others were on an idea lunch the other day with the great Charlie Peabody and Portalis, everyone's right? talking. Portalis Partners, that's right. We were talking uh, about financials and nobody knows financials better than this group here. And we're, we're talking, going back and forth and given all the, the reasons of bad net income, bad credit, bad capital, bad expenses, everything was bad. And at the end of the meeting, Steve goes, ah, talk to me in a year. For now, the sector's dead. And I think he's right. And he kind of reiterated the same point on the venerable uh, CNBC this morning saying the same thing is that, you know, the financials are, are essentially dead here. Like when I short them, they are fairly cheap, but I think, you know, you've seen two banks this week, I think it was Synovus and First Horizon put out some bad credit metrics and put out some bad credit, you know, and you have one or two credits, you know, each quarter now start to go bad, whether it's fraud, whether it's higher rates or whatever it is, but, you know, you're starting to see credit normalizing. We've had credit losses so low for so long. And so I think it's normal. Is it a complete disaster at this point? Absolutely not. But credit is normalizing. And so my my advice is just 
kind of stay away from financial. By the way, you just reminded me of a great Eisman story. So when the housing market was, you know, obviously cratering, and I would say it was 2007 or eight, and Robert Schiller, the great Yale professor, and we all know the Case-Shiller index, mm-hmm. but he was the be-all end-all, even though a lot of his stats are somewhat backwards looking, whatever he said. Right? So it was a broker, I don't remember actually who it was, that put together this entire dinner. He got Schiller to come in, and there must have been 25 people there. I think I don't think Vinny Reporter was there. I was there. And they get a seat for Steve right next to him. And I think Steve shows up maybe five minutes late, sits down, the seat Steve says, Oh, nice to meet you, whatever. Steve's literally eating a salad or whatever. And he turns to him. I think he was, he was in the middle of a conversation. Too, I I, What's that? I thought he was double, double dipping on but he might he may have been some some type of double he turns to and I'm sitting where he turns to Schiller, he goes, Do you think the housing market's gonna go up or down from here? And he kinda long way the answer, he goes, down. Steve goes, Thank you. And he wipes his mouth, his nap, and leaves. Leaves huh. the thing. So really classic. So yeah. But he always gets right to the points. So it's interesting, and I want to sort of segue to something. What Danny mentioned in terms of those companies, the originators, those companies should be in the moving business. In other words, they they these they, platforms, AI. These, yeah. Lending. They should be in other words, yeah. they get stuff, they move it out. They're moving, 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 they take the vigorous. With the what's happened with the market now, it's forced them to be in the storage business. Storage being living on their balance sheet, they're not equipped to do that. Yeah, you go from a multiple revenue to an ROE. Good luck. Good with luck. That. So anyway, and that. that by that's not by choice, by the way. That's because they have no choice. So here's my now awkward segue from the storage business. It's no coincidence, Vinny, that central banks globally for the last two years have been buying gold at an historic pace. China's been buying everything. They're clearly stockpiling for something, a much different conversation for a different time. But central banks have been buying physical gold without question. Now you will say, Guy, it is not manifesting itself in the price. You're 100% right. If you had told me all the shit that was going to happen over the last two years and then said, where's gold going to be in September of 2023? I'd be like $3,000 an ounce. We're not close. Okay, so I get it. Higher interest rates historically, not good for gold. Rates are going higher. I get it. Strength in the dollar, not good for gold. I get all those things. But you know what? With what's been going on with currencies, global bond market, in my opinion, Vinny, and I'm dogmatic, I know it. It's just a matter of time before the trigger is pulled and the gold market becomes a story that everybody's talking about. Guy, I'm going to take your story, agree with you, and take it a different way. Thank you. Which you kind of said it, but, but I, and I'll add one or two things. Given how tight the Federal Reserve has been on policy, a lot tighter than any of us would have ever thought. No one, I don't think anyone here would have said that they had the ability to raise rates by 500 basis points. Dollar has been strong. Gold should be lower, Mm -hmm. materially lower than where it is. It is not. To me, the market is telling us something. And I think what it's telling us, sorry to go back to where we started this conversation, they get fiscal dominance is an issue. Eventually, they're not rewarding us yet in gold as a result of this fiscal issue, but they're also not hitting gold and combined with the fact that I think it'll be extremely slow, but a lot of our other sovereign nations are fed up being on the dollar standard. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying the dollar standard is going to end anytime soon. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm just saying that they would prefer to have an alternative or at least set it up. The second thing that happened today, which I thought was quite interesting, and I'll I'll give uh, credit to Larry McDonald for pointing this out. I don't know about candles or or hammers. The hammers I know is MC Hammer and Hank Aaron. 
But apparently there was a bull hammer on silver today, which I think means that it started off down about 150 bips. And now it's up around 60 to 75 bips the last time I checked, which in technical terms, I think that's a very bullish thing that somehow it fought off intraday lows and was finishing off on the highs. On a day when rates are high, the Fed was tight and everything else. So I'm with you, Guy. I, I kind of begrudgingly dislike the way gold and silver has acted this year. I get why it has. Mm -hmm. But given what has come on, I actually think it's been remarkably resilient. I, I agree with, with Vincent. I mean, gold's up 100 Who would have thought gold's up $100 this year, right? With all this bad news and all the gold bugs whining and crying, you know, gold's up $100. And it's basically flat from all, all that 100 bucks happening in the first two weeks of the year. So what, what I think is happening, and, and nothing is discussed more than gold between Vinny and I and our personal accounts, trying to figure out when the right time to buy gold is. When when will people lose confidence in the Fed? When will people lose confidence in the system and the dollar? And listen, I, I think it's inevitable, in my opinion. And I think when the gold finally breaks out technically and gold gets over $2,000, we'll come out of the woods and say, I told you so. And the higher prices will beget more buyers. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that reinforcing things is, ah, I was right all along. I think you're going to see a lot of that. But every breakout's been a false breakout this year. So let's see. We do own a lot of gold. I, I've talked about this many times. And instead of shorting the market as much as we would have liked, we, we've owned gold as a sort of a short. Vinny, you can use this at your next cocktail party or fun lunch that I'm clearly not invited to. But what I've said for a while, and I know you will, you've heard this and will like it, central banks are hedging their own ineptitude by buying gold. And you know what? That's exactly what's going on. They realize that they've screwed the pooch and they're trying to figure out a backdoor way to cover their asses. And they're doing it vis-a-vis -vis physical gold market, Danny Moses. I agree. All right. So let's get into some individual stock stuff. I will lead off the individual stock, bid. Please. By, by saying, did you guys see the 50-bit cut by the central bank last night? Okay. <laughs> this is some obscure nation. It was was the, Did the Luxembourg central bank do something that I missed or- was it Brazil? It could have been in South Not, America somewhere, I'm thinking. It was Brazil. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. To the bane, to the bone. Yeah. Second 50-bit rate cut from the Brazilian Central Bank in the past, call it two months. So, you know, we, we found Brazil through the, our energy trade. And Paps Blue Ribbon, you know, right? A, Isn't that what you own down there? Paps a little, Blue Ribbon. A That's right. You've got to love the ticker. Yeah, love we, it. we own the preferred shares, which all that means is that you're guaranteed 25% payout of uh, in form of a dividend. The dividends have been quite large this year. So start from the top down. You want to own where inflation and rates are coming down. And you want to own a country where the currency is appreciating, which the, the Brazilian REI has done this year. So that's A from a top down. B, Petrobras is the national champion of Brazil. It's one of the only oil companies in the world that's growing production. It's growing production on a meaningful basis. You can tie into one of our other longs has been offshore drilling, Tidewater and Valeris and such, sea drill. But you know the Brazilians have been tying up with all these offshore drilling companies to drill a lot more. Ever since uh, the acronym BRICS came out, it's sort of had a tough, tough time. And so in 14 through 16, had three down years of GDP, a lot of bad things happened. And so, you know, they've really straightened themselves out fiscally. You know, things are in a lot better place. The corruption was obviously well documented. But, you know, when Lula came back in, it was death, despair, destruction. And sure enough, that's where we re-entered the story again. And as contrarians, that, that was our contrarian pick. We bought it, at, you know, end of last year, December. 
and we own a lot of it. We're not selling anytime soon. And you know, wake wake me up in three four years. EWZ, if you're looking for the ETF, the EWZ is the Brazil ETF. I think it's heavy Vale, heavy Petrobras, but that'll probably yep. get you done if you're looking to play it in a different way. My company is an oldie but goodie, Danny. You might remember it made our year in 2012. And that company's AirCap, ticker is AER. It's about $11 billion market cap. They are the largest owner of planes and they lease these planes to airlines. And recently they made an acquisition about a year or two ago of their number two competitor, which was GE. And they bought these planes at call it 60 to 80 cents on the dollar. So right now they're a bit of a monopoly of a lessor to the regular airlines. The beauty of this name is that management is probably some of the best management I've ever seen in my life. Recently, GE sold their stake in Aircap. So after GE sold their subsidiary to Aircap, they took a stake in Aircap. They recently sold a portion of their stake in Aircap and Aircap bought back a third of the stock themselves. In addition to that, right now, the fundamental trends in aerospace are really favorable, supply demand trends, particularly international travel. There hasn't been a heck of a lot of supply of new planes out there, but the demand for air travel has been high. In addition, they've been selling their older planes, Danny, get this, at 25% gain on sale margins, taking the proceeds and buying back stock at 80 to 85 cents on the dollar. The book value of this company is around $72. The pro forma book value in 2024 is going to be around $90, and that's without a potential insurance settlement, and the stock trades at $62. So I think I have tremendous margin of safety in a management team that we absolutely love and trust. And I think there's 20 to 30 bucks of potential upside in this name with positive fundamentals in the overall industry. You get and AER through, yeah, you get it through 68, which has been a huge level of resistance a couple times over the last few years in terms of technicals. And then you go back about two months ago, they raised guidance saying there's no end in sight in terms of air travel and what they're seeing. They just settled something with Russia, I think, with Lloyd's. And I mean, so a lot of things are moving in their direction. I don't know the management team, obviously, as well as you do, but you know, if they're an eighth as good as what you say, I mean, this stock should be significantly higher, Vinny. Your risk are two things. It's a value trap and you obviously have geopolitical risk, right? And that, that's difficult to handicap. But from a bottoms up perspective, Guy, I agree with you. I, I think I have tremendous upside with very little downside. All right, Porter, you got one to take us out here? They let off the last idea was that risk was a value trap. And and so if, if Vinny and I ever come on the show and start pitching growth names, you should <laughs> run and hide and short the stock. So what we do is we usually buy hated value traps. And this stock, which is BGC, is probably one of the most hated companies. What it is, is an interdealer broker, and it trades fixed income, trades rates, trades commodities, trades stocks, trades all those type of things through the interdealer network. The brokers don't know who's buying and selling. It's an integral piece of what's happened. And for 14 years, as QE settled in and the Fed bought up all these bonds, there was not a lot of volatility, not a lot of growth in the business. And so that period is now over and you're finally starting to see some top line growth, right? You're starting to see mid single digit, high single digit top line growth, which should lead to, to double digit EPS. Now the stock trades at about five times earnings, but the key here is that they are working on developing treasury futures business, which competes with one of the great companies in the world at, with super high margin. And so we think that if and when they get CFTC approval, 
they're going to be able to really grow this business and it really transformed this company. So the company trades at around five times earnings, stocks like five bucks. And I think that you know, over the next year to 18 months, you can see, you know, double digit stock price. And so with really limited downside. And the only real downside that I see is if the CFTC turns them down and not allow them this new futures exchange. So that's my stock pitch. Danny, you did choose wisely last week in the league where they play for pay. You were two and one. Nice, Danny. And yeah. as we go into week three, which by the way, will have started by the time you listen to this podcast. But Danny, yes. enlighten us. All right. So in honor of Vinny and Porter being on here, I just can't see the Pats being 0-3. I think Patriots at Jets. I still think the Jets, I think the airs come out. I think they had a great win on that opening night, and that was it. And so Pats minus 2.5 in New York. I don't see the Chargers going 0-3. Mm -hmm. And I think Minnesota's completely lost, like the Chargers getting a point at Minnesota. The Bengals, I don't see going 0-3. Wow. I know people are worried about Joe Burrow's calf muscle, um, but they're playing the Rams. Rams are traveling to Cincinnati Monday night game. The line has moved. It was two when I took it. It's now three, but I will take the Bengals and lay it there. And two last things. I'm going four games, and I'm going to throw wow. an extra one in. Tennessee getting three and a half in Cleveland. A lot of injuries happened to Cleveland, obviously including Nick Chubb on uh, this this game last week and so against Pittsburgh. So I'm taking Tennessee plus three and a half. They've covered both weeks. Tennessee should be 2-0. and oh. And then tonight, which doesn't count, Guy, but will count for between us, is San Francisco hosting the Giants here on a short week. Uh -huh. Line injuries. Maybe it's too obvious, and the line open has now gone up to 10 and a half. Mm -hmm. I'm taking San Fran. That's not for my pick, so that's just no, extra. Just, by the way, I, I think, think the number is 13 straight the Pats have won against the Jets. It's nuts. Bill Belichick, I think if you asked him, I think he would say, if I can beat the Jets by a com combined total of 80 points, I'll lose every other game. He's got such a hard-on for the Jets. I don't know where it stems from, but he hates them, clearly. But that's for another topic, and you guys will be back. So as we leave the On The Tape podcast, let me say this in leaving. So you think you're Romeo playing the part in a picture show. Well, as it turns out, you're both Vinny and Porter, and you, Danny, Somebody portrayed you in a picture show. And it's interesting, the Romeo part, you look at the two of these guys, Porter and Vinny, couldn't be more different in terms of physical looks, but it goes back to school ties. The Brendan Fraser, the guy that came from Pittsburgh, the good-looking guy that came in, he was a Romeo. But you know what? Matt Damon, whose character of Charlie Dillon, he was a good-looking guy, not unlike Porter Collins, <laughs> both trying to get the affection of an Amy Locaine, I believe her name was, who then obviously saw the benefits of that Brendan Fraser and immediately went to him. That's you, Vinny. But then maybe, <laughs> whatever, maybe she had second thoughts. But school ties is ringing through my brain. Super Tramp is ringing through my brain. It is an absolute joy to have the both of you join us here today. Thanks, fellas. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.